In the current market environment, post-Luna, Celsius, FTX, SPF, Genesis, and CZ potentially being the next crosshairs, U.S. regulators and many market participants have repeatedly asserted that most fungible blockchain-based assets are unregistered securities. Yeah, and with much of the interest in crypto assets to date arguably being driven by their investment potential, everyone wants every crypto to go to the moon. It benefits the judicial adoption of this position since it would give the U.S. regulators jurisdiction over almost every single activity taking place with this assets. Is that good? Well, no. According to our guest today, Lewis Cullen and his colleagues, this assertion is incorrect following their exhaustive review of relevant appellate case law. And today we will make the results of his seminal research, which is 170 pages of unhardly read stuff, <laughs> that are looking to innovate within Web3 and leverage blockchain and crypto assets as part of their strategy while they minimize tail risk. Yeah, so crypto assets, are they securities? Are they not securities? Strap in, because here we go with an incredible inaugural episode of the Web3 show. Yeah, uh, here we go, here we go, it's the Web3 show, before you know it will be Web4, then Web5, Web6, Web7, but now it's Web3, so let's all go to heaven on a podcast here, this ish is the best, learn and laugh with Travis and listen to Chris, Donna lives in the house with Sophia and Nova, talking about AI to help you get over, yeah, like I said, it's the Web3 show, now you know what you didn't, so let's freaking go. All right, welcome to the show, Lewis Cohen, and we're going to get to know him, his background, and more importantly, this, what I call the magnum opus of uh, regulatory insights here, the ineluctable modality of securities law. Fungible crypto assets are not securities. I learned a new word, Travis, actually, um, ineluctable, which apparently means uh, unescapable, inevitable, not avoidable. So big fancy word that I added to my vocabulary. Feel good about that. Thanks, Lewis. Welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be with you guys. Thank you for having <clears> me on. So um, we'll get right into it. But, you know, for since you can do it far better and more efficient than either Travis or I, um, for the folks that aren't familiar with DLX Law, your work, or any of this stuff, um, just kind of tell us how you got in your career, kind of what that arc looked like and how you ended up, you know, here kind of on the forefront of uh, research and regulation and ultimately, you know, formation and litigation and all those things that you do as it relates to digital assets so that so that we can kind of contextualize your path here and then and then we'll dive into some specifics around the, the research. Of course. No, thanks. And, you know, it's interesting for all of us over the age of cough, whatever it may be, you know, we, we all have a little bit of a backstory and origin story. How do we get here? How do we get into the Web3 space, crypto space, whatever you want to call it? And I, I think it's always fascinating. In my case, um, I had a long career in very traditional finance. I worked at um, three very large global law firms working with you know, the largest sort of investment banks, uh, companies, issuers, governmental entities, and doing just very traditional finance stuff, which I, I loved. I enjoyed it a lot. Um, what I specialized in before uh, blockchain was what's called structured finance or, or sometimes securitization. And it's, a, it's kind of the more complex, if you will, nerdy uh, side of of the world of uh, of finance, where uh, basically you 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 take apart a company, uh, take uh, discrete pieces, usually uh, financial assets, sometimes mortgages, credit card loans, all kinds of different things, and rebuild it in a way that makes more sense for the market. 
And, uh, you know, so it was a, a little bit of an obscure area, but uh, it's a lot of fun and uh, it kind of definitely stretches the brain power. When I learned about blockchain, I thought, oh my goodness, for many of the things that I'd done in traditional finance, this seemed like, at least at first, it could be a great answer to some of the problems we had had. And, and obviously, securitization in particular um, had led to some of the abuses that gave rise to the great financial crisis in 2008-9. You know, uh, and so I'd lived through that. And I really thought maybe there's a better way to do it, more transparent, more clear. Crypto did not turn out exactly as I was expecting, but like so many things in life, it's in many ways a lot better than that. But that led me into it. We started our law firm about almost five years ago. We're coming up on our fifth anniversary, which I'm quite excited about in May of 2023. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, you feel like we're kind of almost grown up. We can toddle around and maybe next year I go to first grade. Um, So... uh, so uh, we, we started it um, with my co-founder, uh, who's, who's um, uh, amazing, Angela, Angelovska Wilson, who's based in Washington. And, and we really, we said what was missing in the landscape was a boutique type firm that was able to kind of do a lot of different things, be very agile in the space, but also had lawyers who were quite experienced in the real world. And that really wasn't something in, in 2018 when we started that was that was really out there in the market to any great extent. And even even right now, I think it's it's still a bit of a gap that's missing of very experienced lawyers who also spend a lot of time um, in this space. Things have changed a lot. So our firm, DLX Law, as you mentioned, we have offices in New York and Wilmington, Delaware and Washington, D.C. And we serve a wide range of clients from startup to uh, you know existing players, but anybody who's active in the crypto asset space or, or using blockchain technology in one way or another. In either permission chains or public permissionless chains. That's nice. That's that's really that's really interesting. You got in, you started to say, you know what? There needs to be a law firm out here to sort of make sense of all the stuff that's going on. Because a, a lot of people, you know, I, I think a lot of regulators, they don't know what's going on yet, right? A lot of Congress people, they think they know what's going on, but hell, they don't even know what Facebook does, right? How do we expect them to know what, you know, in cryptocurrencies? Are going to do and, and and what they're all about and so i guess from a high level from you know you wrote this amazing book that that snook read over the course of a couple of days and he's like dude you gotta read this book and so i was like really uh, securities law i don't know if i want to read that book bro but you can read it and uh, let me know all about it so, so tell us so what is your thoughts on that and then maybe even further back when did you find Bitcoin? And then start there, maybe. When did you find Bitcoin? What did you think of it initially? And then how that brought you into this? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think like a lot of folks in traditional finance around you know, 2011, 2012, it, it was certainly on my radar like a lot of folks. But you know, it seemed, I'll be very candid with you guys, you know, it didn't seem like, how's that relevant to me, right? So I was aware of it. It was interesting. Um, I hadn't read uh, the Satoshi White paper, and I really didn't give tremendous thought to it other other than, you know, being aware of it. Um, it was really in uh, 2016, in my case, 2015, 2016, 15, something like that, that I started thinking about after the financial crisis, how could we do things better? And I, I read something that's actually what the very first thing that captured my attention, I remember quite uh, distinctly, was the cover of The Economist, the, uh, the, the business magazine, uh, had a, uh, an article on it, which ironically enough, uh, featured um, uh, Blythe Masters and her company, uh, Digital Asset Holding, which was many years later, I was to learn where my co-founder had been working at the time. 
And um, I was just fascinated by what this technology could do. And it reminded me in many ways of what I'd already been doing, what smart contracts were, what Bitcoin was, what all these things were, were, were kind of a, a better version of, of a lot that I've been doing. And so, you know, I think for any, I have yet to meet someone, Travis, honestly, who, who can read the Satoshi Nakamoto Bitcoin white paper had not come away genuinely enthralled. I mean, you you know, I don't know what you got going on if you could read those eight pages and not be fascinated. And so like so many folks, once I did read the paper, what I thought about what Bitcoin was, how it worked, it's incredible simplicity of design. Um, you, you know, you can't help get wrapped in. And like so many others, I fell down that proverbial rabbit hole. The way I, I describe it, Travis, is I, I knew I was lost. And I think for many people, it's when it's Friday night at 1130 and you're in bed, you've got your, you know, your husband, your wife, your partner in there with you. And they're like, honey, turn off the light. And you're like, eh, one more video, one more article, one more thing. And I, you know, I can't stand it. And so um, that's when, you know, you're kind of going to go to the moon. I got it. Yeah. Got it. So you find yourself really just, just enthralled in that you want to learn more. And then you're driven to find other people. Do you guys um, remember the movie, um, uh, um, See, now, do I refer to the movie? Do you remember the movie um, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, by any chance? It's a 70s oh, yeah. si yes. movie. Mm -hmm. so well, not because I'm old. But not, but well, not because I'm old. Well, clarify, clarify, you know, your dad told you about it, it right? Understood. Yeah, it's because so he likes potatoes that are in the shape of devil's well, Bingo, bingo, bingo. You, you, were, you were right on it, Chris. So in the film, for those <clears> who haven't seen it, right? So a bunch of very disparate people start having this weird kind of image of this, you know, weird hilltop Mesa thing. And they start, one woman starts drawing it artistically. Richard Dreyfus, the actor, builds a, a mound of potatoes in the shape. And everybody's drawn to this place, but they have no idea why. They don't know where it is or what it is. But eventually they all find themselves there. And of course, spoiler alert, it's where the aliens are landing, right? And that's what I really found with Bitcoin and, and, and cryptocurrencies and crypto assets and this technology. We were all drawn to something, right? We didn't know what or why, but we started finding each other in different places, in different pockets. You think, wow, oh, you read about that, you thought about it. And all of a sudden, we all kind of find ourselves in the same place, even though we really weren't expecting it. So that's kind of that sensation of mystery and then discovery. And most importantly, I think, community that's really driven people here. The aliens so, have landed. Well, There's Chris right there. You can see. Right. They avoid you. Yeah. <laughs> For the record, yeah, yeah, I got, I got a bug bite on this arm. Can you see that bug bite, Travis? Can you see that? <laughs> uh, anyway, um, you That's know, so when, I think when, yeah, yeah. I think I think when we first met, uh, it was somewhere in the 2017, 18 range. Maybe it was 18. I I can't remember, but um, I believe you were or your firm was was the one who got the first ever no action letter against uh for the sec against the ethereum or for ethereum is that is that accurate i, I forget if that's yeah no no that's a great yeah it's a great memory that that would have been um 2019 that would have been the summer okay. of 2019 and it was for a great project called pocketful quarters and it was that's right. a wonderful story he's a father-son team and the son at the time was actually quite young he was maybe 12 or something uh, at the time in like in sixth or seventh grade but a really bright kid um and um, the, and the, the father is a, a brilliant guy in his own right, Mike Wiesner. And, um, and it's a great project that's still, you know, going on. And um, they, they had this idea that, you know, could we in some way create or replicate the idea of sort of a Chuck E. Cheese where you have one token 
that can be used in many different games for many different designers. And and so we we took they you know they're they again they they were absolutely you know adamant about going down the middle. Let's do it the right way. And we brought that to um, the SEC's uh, relatively recently created FinHub at the time and explained to them the vision, the idea, and why we were quite comfortable that this. ERC-20 token should not be considered a security. And a mere one year later, <laughs> we were able to obtain a no action letter, uh, which we were very grateful about. And we were very grateful to the staff who were amazing and working uh, with us uh, throughout uh, the process. So yeah, it was a great process. We really had hoped it would be the beginning of a, a kind of a longer term opening toward crypto assets and a recognition that not all crypto assets are securities. But for a wide variety of reasons, you know, that didn't really play out the way we had hoped. So what was the what was the genesis of this latest effort uh, with this this paper and this research, which is exhaustive um, to not only your own words, but also now having read it? Uh, I haven't seen anything that's exhausting, at least. If it's not exhaustive, it's exhausting. (laughs) (laughs) I looked at the I said, what? I looked at the PDF and I was like, no, no, that's exhausting. Yes, yeah, yeah, go ahead. You know, I mean, um, talk to us, uh, talk to us about kind of the genesis of it, but also, you know, feel free to just go right in because I want to get into some of the the takeaways. Um, because again, most of the people listening to this are never going to read it, but they could value this discussion as a way to kind of get the Cliff Notes version that matters to them, whether they're a brand leader, whether they're an IP holder, whether they're an entrepreneur, or maybe they're even a regulator. So one of the things that was interesting is you said in the current state of the regulatory and opinion and approach today, the U.S. obscures a critical distinction between the status of the crypto assets sold on one hand and the status of the fundraising transaction on the other. So as a starting point, you know, kind of genesis of the project and then like, let's just dive right into like what that means and and why that's a problem or why that's an opportunity. Absolutely. And I think, you know, you, you pulled out the really the key thing here. Um, long before crypto is the gleam in Satoshi's eye or, or Bitcoin, at least was in the gleam in, in, in Satoshi's eye, people were raising money by offering business opportunities that were not formalized as shares of stock or, 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 or debt obligations or anything that looked like a normal security. That had been going on, in fact, even before our federal securities laws were ever adopted. It goes back to you know, the 1800s. And, and the states, which had laws back then, said, hey, you can't do that. You can't do a workaround. You can't just say, hey, I'm not selling shares of stock, so there's no security to see here. Uh, but nobody quite formalized, well, what exactly does that mean? Um, there's a famous line about obscenity that the Supreme Court has. It's, I, I don't know what it is, but I know it when I see it. And to some extent, um, this idea of an investment contract was trying to get at that idea. I'm not sure when you're doing a workaround, but I, I kind of know it when I see it. And so um, there was a very reasonable um, concern that if you define securities for all the purposes of these regulations with a very strict definition, people just go, ah, I'm, I'm going around the outside doing an end run here and you can't catch me. And so this term that I think that now at this point, many in crypto uh, are very familiar with investment contract was really, it doesn't have meaning directly, but it's meaning that how do we get at the kinds of transactions that economically and, and substantively feel like securities, right? But they're not clearly defined as such. And of course, at this point, many people know uh, the famous case SEC versus WJ Howey and company that gave rise to the, the, the familiar Howey test. The Supreme Court said, okay, well, let's, we, need to, we need to put some, some guardrails around this. Not everything is a security. Certain things are and certain things aren't. And so they, the Supreme Court developed this four-part test, right? It's an investment of money, 
a common enterprise with a reasonable expectation of profit, primarily from the efforts of others. I actually got a tattoo to my arm over here. I might have. I'm not just saying, you know, you, you've I'm never going to Allegedly, you're never going to know. It's a really sexy tattoo, too, by the way. Yeah, that, that, that <laughs> ladies really, go yeah. crazy, you know? Oh, my God. Yeah. Is, that, is um, that Howie? Yeah, Colby. Yeah, is that the, yeah, is that the Howie test? <laughs> so, so, um, uh, so, so there's this test here. And, and so for long before crypto existed, digital assets existed, people looked at certain kinds of fundraising transactions and said, hey, I think I know what's going on here. Look, I'm offering you. So if I said Travis, you know, I've got, um, I did this deal out in Scotland, right? And I went to one of the distilleries and I got 50 um, huge casks of whiskey that's aging. And I'm, I'm managing them, and, but there's more than I need. And I could put you into this if you like, right? So I'll tell you what, I'm selling one cask for like $50,000, but I can show you records, man. In 10 years, when this stuff is ready to be bottled, it's going to be worth maybe three, four, five times that. It, it's a no, it, it can't lose. Who's going to stop drinking Scotch whiskey, right? It's a, it's, it's a, it's a no brainer. Are you in? You know, I'll take care of you. You don't worry about it. Just tell me where to send the check, right? So in that little speech there, I pitched you an investment contract. It was an investment of money. You're giving me 50 grand. We're in a common enterprise of, you know, uh, distilling, brewing and, and, and bottling. Uh, scotch whiskey, uh, you have a reasonable expectation of profit. Hey, man, you know, and it's from efforts of others, namely me, right? And so those sort of transactions, no matter what the object is, and in the case, the object there was scotch whiskey, you know, aging in a barrel, but it could be anything. In the original Howie case, it was groves that had orange trees that were going to be harvested. And we had many, many, many. And if you, you know, those who are intrepid enough want to go to the back of our article, you'll see examples of the, all the different sorts of schemes that went on. And all of those were considered, they were fundraising transactions. They, nobody ever called them securities. But in many cases, courts said, no, 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 no. You didn't provide the disclosures. So, for example, coming back to my whiskey example, Travis, if I was selling you shares in a company that, you know, was, was, was bottling and, 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 and distilling and bottling whiskey, right? I'd have to give you certain disclosures about my own financial condition, about the whiskey market, about my competitors, about the costs of storage, about volatility in whiskey prices, information that when you got to reading it, you might say, you know, Lewis, <laughs> slow down there, Haas. You know, I don't know if this is such a good deal or not, right? But I didn't give you any of that information because, at least according to me, I was not selling you a security. We were just doing a, a commercial transaction. Hey, you want to buy something? Sure, right? And so what the SEC is concerned about, what courts are concerned about, and which we completely understand and agree, is that those sorts of fundraising transactions do need some policing. We do need to say, if you're offering it to the general public, so let's just say, Travis, you're a you know, regular you know, retail person and I put an ad out on the internet, you know, hey, buy some aging scotch whiskey, and I don't give you the kind of information that you would have received if I had actually tried to sell securities, that's a problem. And even though you might say it's sort of a footfall, as it were, you know, I'm not necessarily defrauding you, without the kind of information that you need about making that investment decision, you know, there's a high likelihood that, you know, you're not going to be making a sound decision. And that's completely reasonable. And we strongly endorse having a flexible test that addresses that. So that piece, Chris, as you said, that fundraising transaction and that somewhat, you know, disguised or obscured, uh, you know, securities offering, that's 
No question about it. That's regulated. And if you don't do it in the right way, that's a problem. So you want to do something like that and you want to offer it to the retail public without sort of an exemption for high net worth folks. You got to go through the SEC. You got to provide adequate disclosures and their protections, anti-fraud protections. So if I do make misstatements or lie about it, it's much easier to sue me than it would if we had a commercial transaction. So that's that part of it is rock solid. Where it gets more complicated, right, is what do you do if the asset that gets sold is, as I say in the paper, the object of the scheme? What if that starts just trading around? I'll pause for a second, but I'll give you an example of something that trades, but just if you want to jump in at that point. No, that's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I think that, you know, people who are listening are going, okay, I kind of get this, but I want to ask about this because this seems to me that to potentially be relevant, it might not be, and you can smack me around if so. But uh, I think it was like 2016, 2017, uh, the SEC came out with the Jobs Act, right? It was the Jumpstart Our Business Startups Act. And yep. that allowed people to do some crowdfunding and early stage businesses to offer these things. And it seems to me that, you know, cryptocurrencies are maybe more like the Crowdfunding Jobs Act in some ways, more so than they are securities. What are your, what's your thoughts on that? And, and, you know, it's a great question. It's a really good question. And I think it, 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 it's part of this story that sometimes gets missed. Because it, it is really um, a, an, an important aspect of understanding what's going on. We did, you know, under the Obama administration, pass the Jobs Act. And the whole idea was that IPOs were becoming uh, initial public offerings, right? Traditional stock offerings were becoming more and more expensive, cumbersome, and, and fewer and fewer companies were going public. And the idea was we want to funnel public capital into new and emerging businesses and, you know, kind of keep the economy invigorated. And and the Jobs Act, you know, did that. Unfortunately, there are a lot of challenges. You can have a whole nother show talking about the benefits and the wonderful aspects of crowdfunding and also some of the the limitations. The short of it was by around 2017, um, 18, it hadn't taken off quite as quickly as I think myself and many other proponents of crowdfunding really would have hoped. And there was this kind of lingering sense that as much as Congress had did and the SEC had done to relax some of the rules and make it a little bit more streamlined and straightforward, raising money from the public for smaller projects was still really, really difficult, costly, and time-consuming, and just hadn't taken off. The crypto comes along, right? And people figure out that with a a couple of clicks on a keyboard in a website, all of a sudden you could raise not just 10 million, but sometimes 100 million. At the apex, um, Telegram, the messaging service, was able to raise, I think it was about 1.5 billion in an informal way. And so and EOS, EOS ro- ro- raised yeah, four billion or something exactly, crazy. Exactly, exactly. You know, it was a, it was a craze and a frenzy, of course. Um, but the fact is, you know, there was a lot of friction and, and appropriate friction, right? For people who'd spent many people spent ten years on the crowdfunding side of things, think, hey man, what do we get? We 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 tried to do this the right way. We tried to come in the front door and like like figure out how to let retail people access, you know, these kinds of opportunities. And we get, you know, I mean, not nowhere, but not very far. And then you guys come along, you blow through all the rules, you just don't give a hoot, and you know, you're raising crazy money and, and everybody's going to the moon, and there's something seems wrong there. And that was part of you know, the friction that started playing out where people say, well, wait a minute, this this can't be right. And so in, um, I guess it would have been 20, the summer of 2017, I believe it was, the SEC issued the Dow report, which was uh, not an enforcement action, but simply their take on the failed 
uh, the DAO, which is a little confusing. It's, at the time, it was sort of the DAO, but it was, it was basically a crowdfunded, um, sort of quasi-decentralized uh, venture fund. And the idea was everybody put some ether into a, a smart contract and people would vote on new projects and, and everybody would make a lot of money. And unfortunately, unrelated to any securities law issues, there was an exploit and a lot of the money was drained out, a story well-known, I'm sure, to many of your, your listeners. Um, and so um, what happened was um, we... Um, the <laughs> lost train of thought for a second. Um, what happened was um, the SEC thought that maybe the message had gotten through that activities like that were going to trigger the same sorts of laws that that crowdfunding would, but you got to comply with the law. And people just didn't, and they ignored it. They twisted things around. Our paper does not focus on that part, and in fact, we strongly endorse the position that the SEC and state regulators, right, have taken. Is that if you're going to raise money through the sale of anything, crypto assets, whiskey, earthworms, whatever it may be, you got to comply, you got to provide disclosures. What we're more concerned about is the kind of the future of, you know, crypto-based uh, decentralized systems, which are token-based, and how, if ever, can you get to the place of having decentralized systems where people use tokens without um, actually allowing them to trade, you know, on a peer to peer basis and, and, and they, and being not securities, we'll talk about that a little more in a second, I'm sure. How, how do you work that all out? And that's really what our paper focuses on. Yeah. And that, and that's, I think that, you know, without the background context, right, you don't really understand the nuances and the importance of the research and the papers contents that you guys have laid out, right? Because yes. without the background, you're still trying to answer the background. Let me give you this tee up and then let's go, let's focus back in on that second piece about the asset itself, right? And whether that, yes. that, that distinction that you came up with and then where that leads us, because I really love the parable of the straw orange tree. You can use whatever you want to do when we do that. But, you yeah. know, to Travis's point earlier, a question earlier in your response, a 25 year old in the 80s had a Dow with 972 was the average, I think, when it closed in 81. You know, the bond market was up and to the right over a 10 year curve. Uh, yep. Housing was affordable. Savings rates were in the high single, if not double digit figures. Mortgage rates were also in the double digit figures, but the economy was working and people saw upside in the asset classes of that time. A 25 year old today doesn't feel any different. You know, no matter how much we want to think they're different, they're not looking at the world any different than a 25 year old 80. The difference is the asset classes that are affordable, available and exciting to them are in this space, right? Because everything else has been bubbled out to death. And so forget the boom busts of like, you know, each one of these hype cycles that we've already talked about at length. At the end of the day, the, the, the underlying message that you've said is the complexity of creating proper regulation that, that spurs innovation, that helps the U.S. in this case, stay on the bleeding edge and stay kind of uh, on, on, on the front end of this economy versus being replaced by some other mix of uh, global, you know, world order um, is critical to get right. And yet complexity is the enemy of execution. So talk to us about why it's important and what that distinction of the second piece of that asset thing that's being obscured is. And then how, where do we go from here so that innovators and everybody else doesn't have to worry about how he tests or homie tests or anybody's tests. They can just, right. Uh, yes. So, so, Boy, I mean, that's a great question. It's a tough question. Um, so the, you know, 
how you start a new system, how you allow people to get exposure to emerging technologies is a challenging question. And we don't really have a good answer. The best answer probably that's been put forward to date as to how you could do it is a proposal from one of the SEC commissioners, um, Commissioner Hester Peirce, uh, who um, is, is widely known as being broadly speaking, supportive of, of crypto assets. And she put forward a proposal whereby those kind of young people who haven't had those opportunities could legally um, functionally invest in this by allowing new projects to uh, effectively sell to retail on something that looks like crowdfunding, right? Um, but as long as they provide much more bespoke disclosures about things that are really relevant to a crypto system as opposed to a company. So, you know, if you're doing crowdfunding of a pizza business, a pizza parlor business, there's a completely different kind of information that you need than if you're doing crowdfunding based on a new crypto economic system. And so her proposal tries to kind of find a way through that and say, look, if you are trying to start a decentralized system, there's going to be a period of, call it three years, where you're not really decentralized, where you are relying on people, where you do need information. If those people can provide certain information, we could let, you know, regular people, people don't have, you know, uh, you know they're not already rich, right? So they, they don't have exposure to, you know, really the cutting edge, you know, venture capital funds and all the places where, you know, if you're rich, you could make more money, right? Um, and so... But, but her proposal hasn't been acted upon. And so really what where we are is we don't have a good, if you will, front end to figure out how at least U.S. people who are not already very rich can get exposure to that. There are policy issues behind that, Chris, that are, that are difficult to answer. And I'm not here to advocate that we should allow, you know, you know crypto to be offered to, you know, at least potentially unsophisticated people who you know, even when given access to information, may not have the sophistication to really understand what they're being, you know, the information they're being given. Uh, I'm not, I don't, I want to express a view either way on that, except to say it's a great question. It's an important question. And for better or worse, it's not one, you know, it, it's like, that's a little bit too big a bite for us to to take off. We, we're focused on a, a, a somewhat more narrow, but critical question. What happens once those critical, once those assets are out there? And I think, and, I, and I'm going to let Travis build from here, but just to follow that up, I think, you know, one of the things that I took away was the real challenge that you're trying to identify and put on people's radar with this is the fact that let's say you don't sell it to a U.S. citizen. The reality is, is that's the primary issue, right? The secondary, yes, exactly right. secondary third, that's how it's coming back in. So you're not going to, if you don't do anything, you're not really solving anything. If you over-regulate, then you stifle innovation here and, and, you know, we fall behind, which isn't, you know, that's not exciting either, but you're not going to stop these things from moving around. Right. And and no one's going to read disclosures any more than they read terms and agreement on Facebook or Google. Right. So, um, so the, at the end of the day, some of it, you could argue again, you know, the pure libertarian side, you could argue, Hey, look, you know, omelets break eggs. Like we got to move. Right. And then on the other side where you're doing consumer protections, especially in the light of some of these recent things with SBF and all these other things, you can, you can have a very sobering and complete argument that some guidance and some framework has to be put in place for those who want to properly register a digital asset, regardless whether it's non-fungible, fungible, whatever the versions and mix of it is. Um, yeah. 
But how do we, you know, like, how do we just deal with the reality of the fact, like, forget it. You don't have a choice. You have to do something and you have to do it right because this isn't a space that's going away. It's not slowing down. It's only compounding. And now you're bringing AI into the mix at a level where it's going to move even faster. So, you know, what <laughs> parts of your research and what kind of effort are you guys seeing a resistance to getting the right kind of people? Because you mentioned several legislators, happy to have you mention them here that you think are doing yeah. good stuff or have bills out there like Lummis and some others that have different pieces yep. of bills moving in the right direction. But what's the appetite? Yeah, yeah, no, well, wow. well, that's, you know, look, I mean, the, I'm always mindful, guys, you know, we, we start these conversations and we say, well, we'll talk for a while. And then you feel like you've been talking for a while. There's so much more to cover because this is so, so complex, so important. So, you know, um, but let me try and pull a few different ideas together, really, that because you touched on, you know, some 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 great stuff. Firstly, let me get the, the core thesis of our paper out, because I think we haven't haven't quite done that. And I think, you know, we'd be doing your listeners a disservice not to do that. So fundamentally, we say, look, you know, as I said a few moments ago, when you're fundraising, it doesn't matter really what the object of the scheme is. If people are putting money in, expecting to get, you know, a, a return back later, and they're counting on you to do it, that's a securities transaction. It doesn't matter what you call it. The issue is what happens, particularly as with crypto assets, when you've got this thing that's basically just like a number, right? It's, it's at the end of the day, what's a, what's a crypto asset? It's ability to give an instruction to a network of computers. What happens if you start trading that around? Is everybody doing securities transactions? In the core thesis of our paper, which you might recognize from the title, is no, those are not securities transactions. It doesn't mean they shouldn't be regulated. It doesn't mean we shouldn't have concerns about them. It's just saying, as the law stands today, under the law today, we don't believe most of those uh, crypto assets are securities. We have a footnote buried deep in there. If you, had, you Many people kind of say that the paper's long enough, the footnotes just kill me, right? But um, there is a footnote that is important, and it notes that certain, you know, decentralized autonomous organizations or DAOs with governance tokens do raise subtle and different kinds of issues. Um, and I think I just want to flag that here that I'm, you know, I'm very aware and sensitive to that, that our analysis is really not focused on where a token is really meant to be an economic interest in the venture as a DAO would be. Um, it doesn't mean those DAO tokens are securities, just saying that that's a little outside of our analysis. But the most tokens, if you look at the coin market cap, you know, 100, the vast majority fit the thesis that we're addressing. And that's basically it. That the token itself is not a security. That's really point one and the critical point. And the, but the second point is when people resell. So if you and I trade, you know, let's just say XRP, we may think XRP is not a particularly useful crypto asset. You may think it has a lot of dependence still on Ripple Labs. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. I'm not expressing a view. But regardless, it simply doesn't create any rights. It's not a financial instrument. And none of these, you know, layer one tokens or many layer two tokens or many other DAP tokens create any economic rights. They're just abilities. They're like tools, right? They're things you could use to accomplish something. Really not all that different than a hammer or a screwdriver. You have this tool. It can do certain things, can't do other things. Is it valuable? Well, you know, if you need a hammer, it's pretty damn valuable. If you don't need a hammer, it's not worth a lot. And I think that's, you know, the way a lot of these crypto tokens work. If you want to store uh, a file in a decentralized system, then the Arweave token is very, very valuable to you. If that's not of interest to you, it has no use at all, right? So it's really more like that. 
And what do you do about that? So our argument is when people trade those types of crypto assets between each other or even on exchanges or decentralized exchanges, those are not securities transactions. So that's really the crux of, of, of what, we're, what we're saying here, at least under current law as it stands today. Now, Chris, you asked about changes in law, and that's a super important topic. Um, you know, as sort of the the the, the twenty twenty two like two podcasts into itself, probably. Oh my God! Yeah, for sure, for sure, guys. <laughs> so so so, but as you know, in terms of there, there were a lot of things. And look, crypto money was flowing hard, and we have to acknowledge that. But there are a lot of, and I've had the privilege of talking to a lot of policymakers, lawmakers, and their staff. And there's a lot of genuine interest here. And I think it's just not at all fair to say, oh, people are like, oh, you spend money on lobbying and you have guys out there talking about quote unquote big crypto really kind of is ridiculous because that's just not a thing. You know, it's, it's, it's really people, when they understand the technology, they're excited about it. And they're excited about the United States being a center of technology innovation rather than testing it aside and saying, we're happy with what we've got. The easiest way to defeat yourself is to be self-satisfied. If you don't push yourself, if you don't say, how can we go to the next step? Look, there will be mistakes when you try and go to the next step. There's no doubt. You'll make wrong turns. You'll run into brick walls. You'll break some stuff for sure. But if you just sit in one place and never do anything, you ain't going to never get anywhere. And so there are legislators out there, and you, um, Chris, called out um, Senators uh, Cynthia Lummis and Kristen Gillibrand. Senator Lummis is from Wyoming, and Senator Gillibrand is from New York State. And they they put together a tremendous bill, the Lovis Gillibrand Responsible Financial Innovation Act, um, that tries to pull together a lot of these different themes. There are also interesting bills introduced out of the Senate uh, Agricultural Committee, uh, Senate Ag uh, by uh, Senators um, um, Debbie Sabinow and and John Bozeman, um, and then out of the uh, House the the House uh, Ag Committee uh, from G T Thompson, Representative Thompson there was the uh, Minority member, now the ranking member in the House Ag, and his bill was called the DCEA, Digital Commodities Exchange Act, I believe, got that right. And so yeah. those were all great initiatives. Um, all of them had things to recommend them. I think what we're going to see in 2023 is an attempt to bring the best of those things together, recognize where there are weaknesses, where there are gaps in the market, and really try again. We have a challenging legislative calendar this year. We have to deal with the, the debt ceiling issue. There's a good chance that takes up a lot of airspace. How that plays out remains to be seen. How that impacts the dollar and other things remains to be mm-hmm. seen, right? But, um, you know, it, it's possible. And of course, as we head toward the end of this year and to the beginning of next year, we rapidly move into the presidential cycle, which as always takes up quite a lot of, you know, the airspace on anything else. But I'm still optimistic that we're going to make progress. There are a lot of great people out there who just care about this and who are not listening to lobbyists. They're trying to do what's right for the American people. And I think well, that's great. You know, you know we, I, we I want to ask this. We're, we're, yeah. we're coming up on the end of the time here. And I, I have a couple of questions that I Please. think are relevant before, rapid fire. Yeah. before we wrap it up. First of all, you know, so we're talking about cryptos not being securities from your perspective. What about security token offerings? Like some of these very big companies, it seems like, you know, as we move forward, we're going to reach the end of life cycle for traditional stocks and move into security type stocks. What's your, you know, what's your sort of brief thought on that? It's a great question, Travis. It, it's the, it's, I think it is the future. I think it's very hard to disagree with that. The hard part is when, right? Because it's not just the security token, like creating a digital asset um, that represents 
you know, a true security, an interest in a business, a debt obligation, something like that. Not that complicated. Managing its trading, not that complicated. But all the other infrastructure that goes with it, really hard. And all the laws we have, we just have a lot of infrastructure. And unlike like Uber sort of, you know, disrupting, you know, traditional local taxi companies, there's a whole global infrastructure that's built around this. There's a whole legal infrastructure. So I think it is the future and I think we have to keep pushing for it, but it is going to be time consuming and it is, you know, it's just going to take a lot of work by a lot of people. I think we'll get there, but it's going to take time. Yeah, that's nice. So security tokens seem to be something that, I mean, I would love. Like if I were to say, for example, I bought an iMac with Apple back in 2003, it sure would have been nice to get some, it didn't exist, but some Apple token along with my Mac. And then that Apple token increases because I'm I'm loyal to them and I get some return on that, right, over time. Because instead I spent $3,000 on a computer that ain't worth shit now and I didn't get any stock and now I'm not all that much. If I'd put that $3,000 in Apple at $11, I'd be way better. A heck of a lot better, for sure. But let me just point out some real key to this the discussion. And that is crypto assets are generally what we would call bearer assets. That means if you, mm. hold, if you hold it, if you know the private key, you can move it. If you don't, you can't. And stocks just can't work that way. And once okay. that very fundamental thing gets broken, you, you're in a different world now because you need a reliable source. Firstly, nobody, you know, we accept the fact that if I lose my private key, I lose my Bitcoin. And that's just been internalized, right? People understand that. Yeah. Nobody is going to accept if I lose my private key, I lose my Apple shares. Right. No, that's true. It's that's true. A, I want to ask you about well, NFTs then real quick too. I would just, yeah. just as, a, as a real quick, be, so is it, because I think that this kind of ties in because say, for example, and this is something I'm looking at, is my home, I own it 100%, right? I'd like to fractionalize ownership this thing and distribute NFTs out to potential uh, partial owners in this thing. And so some people are saying, wow, there's some regulation issues. There's some, oh, that could be this, it could be that. But it's like, I own my house 100%. If I wanted to sell one ninth of it as an NFT, I should be able to, right? So what are your well, kind of well, costs? You should be able to sell it. It's what you have to do to sell it. That's the tricky part, right? So the SEC has looked at fractionalized interest, particularly in real estate for a long time, long before crypto ever came along. And generally speaking, if the people buying the fractional interest are not going to occupy your house, like you're not saying, hey, you can come spend a couple of weeks a night, my wife and I'll have you over and whatever. It's not like that. It's just you're getting the economic benefit, but none of the what we call consumptive benefits. Gotcha. That's okay. generally viewed as a security. And, okay. and that's fine. And you could sell but it. But if I tied it in with said, okay, you buy one ninth of the home, then you can have one month a year Airbnb to stay here. That Adds consumptive. And right. it, absolutely. It gets, it certainly gets more, more, more complex. And yes, yeah, absolutely. I mean, just like, have you that. back on here, bro. I, I think we got another hour ahead of right. down the road. I'm enjoying yeah, it. I, so, so to, to that point, it's kind of like a wrap up, you know, to some of this. Um, and I encourage everybody, we'll put the link to the paper. And I do encourage people to at least try and read some of it. Um, because there's a lot in here that we didn't get to cover, but it's, it's surprisingly readable, right? I will say, and, and, and look, you know, no, no BS. It's, it's like, if you get over the intimidation factor of the title and the fact that it's a paper and that really smart people put a lot of research into it and there's footnotes and you just get rid of all your high school brain damage and PTSD that you might have from a bad teacher, it's super readable. I don't want to say it reads like a novel because I don't read novels, but it definitely reads like a good business book. And and I think if you're interested in this space, you owe it to yourself to to kind of to push through and and, and try and muscle through it because I, I, it's not hard to read. I will say that it's not hard to read. Some of the terms, you know, you got to look stuff up, but that's part of learning. So um, to wrap up, my you know my final question would be: you mentioned so many precedents uh, throughout this text, 
And, and it's super valuable because it really shows how exhausting and exhaustive your research was. But um, some precedents may matter more than others. And so you mentioned XRP earlier. Uh, somewhere in the next couple of months, we're either going to have a judgment and a ruling or we're going to have a judgment and a ruling and it's going to go to appeals court. Whatever that is, sometime in 2023, we're going to have a very clear idea of what SEC versus Ripple yields, right? From your legal perspective and from your, from your vantage point, how impactful on a weighted basis will the SEC Ripple case be to future regulation compared to prior precedents, including how it? Like, in other words, will it be more important, same as another brick? Like, where do you think it ranks and how important is that decision as it relates to the broader implications for regulatory uh, oversight in the industry? Yeah, I think you're asking me great questions. You know, I turn up there a number of podcasts, and these are really getting at, like, really good questions. You know, I think it's going to be very important. There's no question about that. Will it be more important than how we know? I don't think so, because it's not setting a standard. Also, it's important for, and I know, and, you know, people love the XRP army, you know, but but it just, you guys got to remember here, right, that this case is not about whether the XRP token is a security. That is just irrelevant to the case. The case is a company. Ripple Labs sold something, doesn't really matter what. The SEC is alleging that many of those sales were to people who did not have any interest in actually using the XRP token to make payments or do anything else. All they wanted was a number go up opportunity and their reasonable expectation was number go up because of the efforts of Ripple Labs. I'm not expressing a view. I'm just saying that's what this case yeah, is. Yeah, that's about. 99% of crypto right there. Everybody yeah, wants their crypto it. to go up. I want to hold my cryptos. I'm going to use it maybe. And I like it to go up and to the right. 100%, Travis. And you're right. The thing is, when you're fundraising off of that, those are securities transactions, which is what I was kind of saying at the beginning. Almost all of those are. So what, what the SEC is alleging, it's important to understand, is really that this Ripple case is really no different than the gazillions of cases on the back of the article there not quite a book, maybe it'll become a book, um, but you know, it, it's really not that different. And in that respect, Chris, it's really not that impactful in a, in a traditional sort of legal presidential sense. It's gonna be hugely impactful from a policy point of view and just its impact on people, real folks, legislators and stuff like that, because it is the biggest case by a long measure, you know, and, and to your Ripple Labs credit, they put up a tremendous defense, tremendous defense. It's like, you know, you got this goal line stand, right? And just that fullback just powers through, it hurts, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be thick if that's the way it turns out. I would just know in terms of outcomes, I, I think a very possible outcome is that both summary judgment motions are denied, the SEC summary judgment motion, Ripple Labs summary judgment motion, which would actually mean they could appeal, but you could actually go to a trial at that point. So that's, you right. know, it just could drag which, on for a long time. Yeah, that's a whole other, that's a, that, that, that won't be a podcast interview. That could be a coffee or a scotch uh, conversation when we're together sometime. Um, because I think you, that's, my, my gut says that's probably the, the way the judge will go just because then, then you know, unless she's really brave. But um and then it and then it puts it into trial, in which case Ripple probably wins. You know, I, I think you know Ripple has a much better chance if it goes to trial, although they don't want to bury the cost of that, right? That, that's the. Well, I'm, I'm not going to express a view on that one, but yeah, just to say, yeah, look, it's yeah, complete. No, your question yeah, is, it's going to be very. I think. Yeah, I think I think that you know there's a lot here. We didn't get into non-federals because that's a whole other piece. Uh, Travis started to touch on it, but. Um, you know, DAOs, non-fungibles, there, there could be implications here because some of the things that you mentioned in the text are about how, 
you know, the, uh, the utility of it's one thing, but like, if I transfer that utility, that might make it a security. So again, like membership tokens, things like that, it got me thinking about, well, wait, if I have a membership token or if I have a JPEG, but it comes with membership utilities, if I flip the JPEG and those utilities go with it, am I now the bearer of, or am I now the broker of a security that was unregistered? Because for retail investors, they don't even know what that means, but that means they're basically criminalized. Right. And so we can't not be criminalized, but yes, subject to liability. Yeah, it's a serious thing. Subject to liability, but at the end of the day, what's not going to work, and I think we can agree on this collectively, and this is what you're getting at, is what's not going to work is we try and take stock and bond related regulatory uh, frameworks and apply them to this because it's different. And there's no way that you're going to activate these communities of common interest around commerce and all these wonderful things that unlock and, and shared prosperity and all these different things and then make the retail guy have to go get an RIA or a Series 7. Like, it isn't going to happen. So there has to be some design thinking put into the policymaking and understanding the real use cases and mitigating consumer protection risk on the front end, but also eliminating tail risk for brands and IP holders who are doing great stuff, whether it's Starbucks or whatever. And I would add this, Chris, is that we have to be careful about this regulation because if not, a lot of the innovation is going to leave America and never come back. Right. Because so it's, it's, right. to me, it's this it's this fine balance that you, you got to walk the walk, because if not, people are just I mean, look at San Francisco now. It's not nearly what it was. Right. And innovations leaving. They're going to Malta. It's going to Singapore. It's going to places in the Caribbean because, you know, in some cases they're a little too stringent on, oh, you can't invest in this coin. You can't invest in that coin. There was an opportunity for me to invest in flow when it was 10 cents and then it went to thirty five dollars or whatever. And it's like, I lost a bunch of money because I couldn't invest in it. You know, the three countries that could not invest in it, America, North Korea, and Iran. Those were the three countries that couldn't freaking invest in that thing. So they yeah. got to get it right it's or they're going to get it wrong. And they're gonna right. be- I'll tell you this. I, I spoke to two young, very successful entrepreneurs, you know, probably you know, early mid-20s uh, earlier today. What was my advice? They were starting a new, a new project. What was my advice to them? Go offshore. It was sad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, don't build in America because America ain't got to figure it out. Yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, and I think and I think that's what you're saying is you know our we have to we have to drop apathy and arrogance. Policymakers need to be under the age of sixty. You know, moving forward. No offense, but it's like we need a better balance. I'm not saying all, but we we need we need people that are get off Christmas lawn, people. Get off (laughs) it. Yeah, yeah. Get off my lawn. But you know the uh, the reality is is it's the apathy um, and the willingness to learn, the willingness to not be satisfied, and not from a fear standpoint of oh China or this or that's going to replace us. Just from a reality of that, this is how we took the last hundred years, right? We took the last hundred years because we became the land of opportunity. But that's not a given, you know, moving forward. And you know, the next land of opportunity could stay here or could be somewhere else. And like Travis said, you know, friction um, prevents flow and capital and talent can flow anywhere because they can talk like this to anyone in the world with a remote connection. And it's a different dynamic than a hundred years ago. And so yeah. we have, to, we have to take it as serious as again, I hope everybody reads and this thank paper. You. And thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I think we're both on the same page here, Travis. Like, DLX Law, thank you for all the effort. This is an, this is tiring to read and I, because I can think about how much it took for you guys to write it. And uh, keep it up. Keep up the good work. We'd love to support you. Yeah. Jeff, write something else, Greg, and we'll have you back on. 
<laughs> Thanks so much. It's a pleasure, guys. Have a good one. Take care. Thanks. Take care. Okay, bye. Thank you for listening. Tune in each week to Web3 Show live on FinTech TV each Wednesday. And look for long-form audio podcasts with guests on this audio podcast channel each Monday and Friday. Learn more at web3show.io. And we will see you next time.